Maybe you can relate to me. There I was, this week actually, at the counter, ready to pay, a cart full of things, and then it came time for me. It was my turn. She had swiped all the things, entering them into the computer, and now it was my turn to swipe the card. And so I grabbed my wallet, I pulled it out, and I went through it looking for my card, and you know what happened. Nothing. I didn't find it. It wasn't there. You could have probably uh, lit a small fire off the heat on my face. I was embarrassed. What was I going to do now? The line was beginning to form behind me, and I needed these items. What was I going to do? Maybe you've been in a similar predicament to me. You thought that you had something, but when it came time to, to really find out, you realized you didn't have the thing that you thought you had. And sometimes that happens to us with debit cards, and life goes on, no big deal. Sometimes it's a set of keys, but other times it's more serious. Maybe it's a friend that we thought we had, but when the time comes, we find out who our friends are, as the song says. In this particular case, this text this morning, there's a warning for us given by the life of Noah, and that is some of us might think that we have faith, but if you think you have faith but you do not have works, there is a good chance you actually don't have faith. Again, a debit card is one thing, but faith is another altogether. As we consider the life of our brother Noah, in this short verse that is a synthesis of Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, I want to just offer this main idea for you. If you're taking notes, it'll be on the screen for you. Uh, don't, don't, no need to write fast. It's a very brief one. But here's the main idea. True faith is a working faith. True faith is a working faith. I want you to notice something in this great hall of faith as we have alluded to. We've already seen two gentlemen. This morning we'll see a third. And the three of these round out the, the heroes of the faith that came along pre-flood. And the rest of the list, I don't think there's anyone mentioned that is post-flood. The first one that was mentioned was Abel. And Abel, we, we recognize that he had a faith that worshiped. He had a faith that led to worship. The faith that he had in God and obeying God, not just believing in God, but remember, believing God led him to worship, to make that sacrifice. But then we saw Enoch, and Enoch, he also had faith, but his faith was a faith that were, or walked. We know this of Enoch. He walked with God, and he was not, for God took him or translated him. And so there was the faith that worships, the faith that walks, and this morning we're going to see the faith that works. Faith that works. Do you, do you notice the progressive nature between these three? It's an interesting order. First, notice that we're brought into a right relationship with God by trusting the sacrifice that he's provided for us 
in his son, Jesus. And so we trust in the sacrifice that's already been made, been made on our behalf. It's worship. Second, we, having been brought into that right relationship with God, we then begin to walk with him by faith. That's a relational term. Our relationship with the Father has been restored, and and day to day, step for step, we walk with God. And now third, only after our relationship has been made right and our worship, our sacrifice has been made, only then can we perform the works of faith that we were created before the foundations of the earth to do, to walk in these things, these good deeds. Again, these good deeds, this work of faith is only possible because of the, as a result of God's working grace into our lives through faith. Theme of this morning is faith that works. Can you think of somebody in the Old Testament who more vividly or more strongly embodies this sort of an idea? Because you believe something, you do something. Now, there's a theme that's true, it's taught throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament that says that it's faith alone that saves. And yet the truth is, faith alone saves, but faith is not alone. And I'm going to write that down. It's faith alone that saves, but faith is not alone. A man is justified by faith. In case that's not clear, if you look at verse 7, there in chapter 11, look at the very last line speaking of Noah and he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith even though it's underlined and attributed to Noah that he did a work that pleased God it was not his work that earned him righteousness he became an heir of righteousness by faith And yet that faith was not alone again. We considered this a few weeks ago. Faith is not believing in God. Faith is believing God. It's a very small distinction, and yet it has an incredible result in our lives. Even the demons believe that God exists. They tremble. They have more fear of God than we do, sadly. And yet they are not believing God's word. They're not submitting to his word by faith. As you consider your own faith this morning, I, wanna, I want you to see what this passage teaches you and me about our faith and about works. Now, one of the four things I'm going to point out underneath this idea that true faith is a working faith. The first one I want to point out is that faith does not require evidence. 
Some of you might be thinking in your life, there, there's some works that go along with my faith in life, but I think that my works would increase if the evidence in my life also increased. If I had more evidence for the existence of God, I might would end up doing a little bit more work to go along with my faith. Well, that is not what the scriptures teach. I'll make four observations this morning. The first is that faith does not require evidence. Look at verse 7 at the very beginning. It says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, he went on and did something. By faith, after being warned by God of events that hadn't yet taken place yet, he had not seen them, he built an ark. Now, unpacking this idea that faith, true faith, does not require evidence, I want to help you understand what it is that we're talking about whenever we read concerning events as yet unseen. The first event that was yet unseen was simply rain. Rain. If you were to uh, jump back with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Chapter 2 is the second chapter. It'll be on the screen for you, I hope. There it is. No, it's not. Now it is. This is what the scriptures teach us. The very beginning of the creation of the world it says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Reality is that at this point in time, the makeup of the earth was quite different than it is today. The cycle that we know and uh, enjoy often is not the same cycle that took place in those days. Now, there was a system that God had in place that would water the earth, but it was not coming from the sky. There was a mist, not a rain. There were pockets of water that would be used to water the, the ground. At this point in time in Noah's life, God is saying that there's an event that's about to take place. You're about to see water fall from the sky in great droplets. And yet that was an event that up to date, he had not yet seen. And so God was telling him something that he couldn't lay his eyes on. He couldn't think back in time to a time that it had happened before. He simply had to believe that what God was telling him was true. But that's not the only thing that we see as being referenced by these unseen events. There's rain, but there's also judgment. You were in Genesis 2. Jump forward four chapters to Genesis 6, verses 13 to 22. We see there God referencing that in addition to rain having not happened before and now beginning to happen, also judgment having never happened before would now come on the land and on the people. It says in verse 13, Genesis 6, and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. This is, again, something that has never taken place up until this point in time. 
God is saying to Noah, hey, the entire world has rebelled against me. The entire world is filled with violence, hatred, and sin. And because of that, I've determined that I'm going to make an end of all flesh. I'm going to bring judgment on the earth and wipe them out. Again, this is something that had never taken place to date. More specifically, if you were to keep reading, here's another event that had never taken place. Combining the rain and the judgment of God, we read in verse 14, God says, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Why? Verse 17. Skip down to there. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of the earth, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. This is just part of the judgment that God is letting Noah know about. Rain will be coming. A flood will come as well. A global flood destroying everything that creeps upon the earth that's not on or in I should say, the ark. He's never seen any of these things. And yet, what do we read of Noah? It says he believed God. What can we learn from this? That faith does not require evidence. If his faith then doesn't come from evidence, if it doesn't come from sight, you may be asking, well, where did Noah's faith come from? How did he believe so strongly these things? Well, the scriptures teach us in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Where did Noah get the faith to believe what God had said from God himself, specifically from his word? The scriptures teach us in Genesis that God came to Noah and indicated these things to him very clearly with a special revelation. And he, in that way, gave Noah faith as a gift. His spirit, the spirit of God, uses the testimony of God, which we have in the scriptures. And Noah had there audibly. He uses that in Noah's life and he brings about faith. And that faith that Noah then has brings about works. In the last 100 years or so, there, has been, there have been several who claim to uh, have laid their eyes on Noah's ark. It's really interesting. It's somewhere in the mountains of, of Ararat, right, Turkey. Some have said, well, uh, some explorers have said, well, I, we found it. There was a, a couple of warm seasons apparently there in the mountains and so much of the, the snow had melted down and apparently some, some uh, I don't know what you call, uh, uh, some, what do you call somebody who uh, you know, goes up on top of the mountains in the snow? What is that person called? Yes, mountain climber. There we go. Basically Indiana Jones with some like better gloves or something. 
But he goes out and he comes back and he says, hey, I found Noah's Ark and here's a little tiny piece of wood that I brought from it. And he's like, hey, I'm going to bring a crew back and we're going to show everybody. But when they come back, conveniently, the snow has fallen. Well, this is like the kind of stuff that a a 14-year-old boy like myself finds out about and is like, man, that would be so amazing. If we could just get a piece of the ark, if I could see it, then I would really know that the flood was true and that God really did save all of mankind through Noah and his family on this ark. But then there's another guy that's like, hey, I found this really neat outline. If you, if you look at this uh, aerial picture that I've taken and, and this seismic readings that we've taken with all these fancy uh, measurements and, or, or tools, they'll say, look, this looks like uh, this, uh, this spot here in the earth is, is, is really holding a collapsed ark to the same dimensions that the Bible tells us the ark was. And no, it's not on the same mountain buried in the, the ice, and yet it still gets the mind rolling and thinking, hey, wouldn't that be cool if that really was the ark? Maybe one day we'll have the technology to be able to scan the ground and, and reconstruct the ark, and then we'll know. It's just a matter of time. Then we'll know if it's true. This is the sort of lie that Satan wants us to believe. That if we had the right evidence, then we could believe what God has said. Notice this isn't the kind of course that Noah took. When God spoke to Noah, Noah said, this is God, his word is true, and I'll believe it. Whatever God tells me to do, my faith is in God, my faith is in his word, and therefore, because my faith is in him, I'll, I'll work accordingly. I'll live accordingly to what he has said. Maybe you know this about me, but I love words, and I love understanding how a word came about. Think about this word, believe. From what I understand or what I've been told, it, is, it comes from the old English words, by, live. By, live. And so what really we're, we're saying when we say the word believe is we will live by this thing. If we really believe something, we will live by it. Doesn't that demonstrate? Doesn't that illustrate faith exactly the way that the scriptures are encouraging us? If we believe God, if we live by his word, then faith and works will come together and one will naturally flow out of the other. Noah had not seen a flood, but he had God's word, and he lived by God's word, indicating that he did have faith. One famous Bible teacher who's long gone said this of faith. Faith is obeying God in spite of circumstances or consequences. Faith is obeying God in spite of circumstances or consequences. Certainly we see that in the life of Noah. He believed God despite consequences or circumstances. Let me ask you, friend, where are you struggling to believe God? Where? It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of where. All of us in our lives whether we've been a Christian for 
50 years or for maybe less than 50 days. All of us are struggling and growing in our faith. Where are you struggling to believe God? Maybe it's where he says in Psalm 34 that he's near the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. That's a promise. God says to us, his word comes to us this morning and says, I'm near you. If you have a broken heart, I want to be near you. And if you're, if you're crushed in spirit, I'm going to save you. I'm going to rescue you from that. And some of you are thinking this morning, I just, I just don't know if I can believe that. I just don't know if that's true. You say, well, I need a little bit more evidence. I need a little bit more from God to know that he's really going to do the thing that he said. And friends, that's not faith. That's not faith. That's not what God calls us to. Do you want to please God? We looked at this uh, four weeks ago. Do you really want to please God? Well, it's not a mystery to us. The only way to please God is to believe God, to trust God. And so this morning, if your heart's broken, trust him. He wants to be near you. He wants to save you who are crushed in spirit. Maybe this morning you're struggling to believe God that, that a holy life is really a good life. Maybe you're coming to the point in your life where you have a little bit more freedom. There's a little more temptation. You've come to the point in your life where not everybody's looking over your shoulder holding you by the hand. You get to spend your money and spend your time the way that you want to do that. And you're hearing the words of God saying, I, 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 want, I want you to live a, a healthy, holy life. I want you to live a life that will bring joy to you and glory to me. And that is by living a righteous life. And you're looking at that and you're saying, God, I just don't know if that's true. I just don't know if a righteous life really is a, a good life. Maybe you say, I need a little more evidence. Or maybe you're saying this morning, I, I, I know the God, the God of the Bible promises that he's going to give me victory over my lust, and yet I've not experienced that yet. And so I need more evidence to believe that. Or maybe you're saying, hey, I just don't believe there's a coming judgment. There was a coming judgment in the day of Noah, and nobody believed it. They said, hey, the, the world's going to go on. As it has from the beginning of time. It's never gone any other way. The sun has always risen and the rain has never fallen. And that's how life will continue. There's no judgment coming. And yet they found out that judgment would come. Maybe that you're, that's the same thing you're struggling with today. The scriptures teach us that for those who turn away from God and rebel against him. We just read it in Psalm 73 that God's wrath is against them. In a place called hell, they will spend eternity. Maybe you're struggling to believe God over that as well. There's a million ways that we could investigate where it is that you're struggling to believe God. And I don't want to cast some sort of shame upon you. We all are in this boat where God has spoken to us. He's called us to believe him, and yet we're struggling in this way or that way. You say, I need more evidence. I need to understand, I need this or I need that. And brother, sister, what I would encourage you with is this. We simply need to believe God. 
Greater understanding and evidence is nice, but simple faith in God is all we need. Faith is not wait for evidence. It, it trusts God. It obeys God. But I want to point something out to you in the positive, or to say it positively, it's a negative thing, but it's the second point. And it's this. In regards to faith, and we're seeing it in this text, it says that faith is hindered by fear. Faith is hindered by fear. Now, some of you who have actually paid attention to the verse being read are saying, wait a minute. It says, by faith, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, Noah constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And so you're saying this morning, wait a minute, faith is hindered by fear, and yet Noah had fear. Well, there's two types of fear, generally speaking. The sort of fear that Noah had was not a hindrance. No, it was a help. It was a holy reverence for God. The God who said, I am coming to destroy the world because of their sin. That's something that will make you shake in your boots whether you're on the boat or not. But that's not the sort of fear that we're talking about. Fear, a reverence for God a respect for his power and glory and majesty is not a hindrance. And yet there is a fear that is a hindrance. And the scriptures call that the fear of man. The fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25. This is a fantastic verse for you to memorize. If you're a young man or a young woman just getting started in your Christian life, this is a principle that you need to memorize and know. Proverbs 29, 25 says this, the fear of man lays a snare. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Whoever trusts in the Lord, whoever believes in the Lord, whoever has faith in the Lord, that person is safe. Now, I don't know everything about hunting and the sportsman ways of the first century and even before that, the ancient ways of snaring creatures. But here's what I know about a snare. You don't want to be caught in a snare. The purpose of a snare is to entangle its prey, to trap them so that they can be killed, so that they can be devoured and destroyed. The fear of man, friends, it lays a snare. Members of Hagerstown Church, brothers and sisters, there are snares all about us. Everywhere we turn and where we look, especially in this day and age, and I'm very careful to act as if this day and age is any more dangerous or sinful than the previous ones, but it's different. Everywhere we look, in every realm, there are snares that want to entangle us and to kill us. They're dangerous. I want you to notice that Noah's fear is not sourced from man, though. It's sourced from God. It's directed or coming from God and not man. 
God made it clear to Noah what was going to take place. He made it clear to Noah what he was to do, and Noah went and did it. He had fear for God and not fear of man, but you need to know something. That cost Noah quite a bit. He would be mocked incessantly for the next 120 years as he spent all of his time, all of his energy, all of his money, all of his resources in building a boat? What's a boat? Why would you build this thing so far away from water anyway? He would be mocked. He would lose his reputation as a man who was sane. But not only that, but we know from the scriptures, and we'll see it in a moment, that Noah, during his time of building an ark, spending everything he had, time, talent, and treasure on, on obeying God, we know that he also preached. And what was he preaching? The scriptures teach us that he was preaching righteousness. What does that mean? He's looking at all the people who have gone away from God, who hate God and are rebels against him, and he's looking at them and he's saying, you need to live a righteous life. You need to live a, a life that's in line with God's will and purpose for your life, and what you're doing right now is not that. Whether he does it this way or that way, he's going to come across as a prude. But what's more than that, he's going to come across as a bigot. Not just old-fashioned, but he's also going to come across as somebody who's hateful. Why would you preach condemnation? Why would you preach this righteousness that, that is a burden to me as I try to do whatever I want to do? You just hate me. You're, you're saying that the things that I believe are me are wrong and that God will come and destroy me because of it? You're just hateful. Cancel. You better believe that didn't just happen. It doesn't just happen in our day. It happened in Noah's day as well. All of these things that Noah was facing are real things. People would think he was really crazy. How many of you really, whether you're crazy or not, want to be thought of as crazy? Right? If you do, you're crazy, and we know. If you want... But most of us, we're all a little crazy, but there's a little bit of us that's sane enough to say, I don't want people to know my crazy. And Noah here is saying, I don't want to be, I don't want people to think I'm crazy. I don't want to be ostracized at the, in, in public and, and not taken seriously. But I tell you what, I'm far more afraid of God. And he says, I, I don't want to be thought of as, as being old-fashioned and not any fun. I want to have friends and I want to have a good time, but I want to obey God more. And he says, I, I don't want to be a bigot. I don't want to be thought a bigot. I don't want to be thought as just a hateful person that just spouts condemnation all the time, just a Debbie Downer. But I don't, I care less about what people think about me and more about what God has said. And that's why with urgent reverence he races to pour his life out to obey God friends I don't know what snare is laid around you right now but it is laid around you 
And I don't know which ones are closest to your foot, but the fear of man brings a snare. And it's the greatest hindrance to a walk of faith. Fear of man, its greatest hindrance is, uh, that's the greatest hindrance to a walk of faith. I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't want to be hated. I don't want to be thought of as hateful. But even more than that, I don't want to be ensnared. This month marks what many in our modern day refer to as Pride Month. It's a month that is set aside by our culture for the celebration of a lifestyle, a collection of lifestyles that God in his word has condemned. It's a parade of ideas that the Bible denounces. All of those things that are being celebrated by vendors all over the social media platforms, even in the streets, along with every other sin that you've ever been tempted by, has been denounced by God. It's not for us to celebrate, and it's not for us to be hateful about, neither is it for us to be quiet. You say, well, we may come across as hateful if we speak out against the lesbian or the homosexual or the transgender ideology. We may come across as hateful. That may be so. We're not to be hateful. Not at all. And yet, we may be labeled as hateful. The question is, are you more afraid of what people think about you The label that will be placed upon you, or are you more afraid? Do you have more holy reverence for God than what he says? You say, well, I don't want to be, I don't want to come across as old-fashioned or irrelevant. What do you want? Do you want to fear God, or do you want to fear man? You say, well, I may be thought of as a fool. Which do you want? Do you want to be a fool in God's eyes, or thought of as a fool by fools? Jesus, speaking to his disciples, said this, don't fear those who can destroy your body or your reputation or your livelihood. He says, don't fear those people. Fear those who are that one who can destroy the body and the soul in Sheol. That's an incredibly centering principle. Yes, your reputation in this life can be destroyed that's something but something far greater is God and his wrath oftentimes you'll come across the book and regardless of how large or small the book is you really don't even need to read it because the title is just so pointed and front-loaded this book I'm about to mention by Ed Welch is that book if you just hear the title of the book you really don't even need to read the book title of the book I'm thinking of is When People Are Big and God is Small. Think about that. When people are big and God is small. I've talked to you. Some of you have actually read that book and it's been helpful for you. I know in my life, in my wife's life, it's been helpful. Young person, teenager, you're just getting started in life and this book would be a helpful book for you. When people are big and God is small. Some of you 
myself included, need to think about that. God has become small in our eyes. He's become small in our mind, in our lives. And people have become much, much bigger. I want to ask you, who is bigger in your mind? Who is bigger in your life? God or the fools around you whose future is damnation? Who's bigger in your mind? When it comes to faith, a faith that works, I want you to understand from this passage, point number three, and that's that faith condemns the ungodly. Now, I want to say this on the onset of this point, right at the beginning. Faith condemns the ungodly. Now, we're going to unpack this whole thing, but let me just say, faith that does not have works does not condemn the ungodly. It only encourages them. Fake faith, faith that really doesn't have any substance, does not condemn the ungodly. It only encourages them. It only confirms for them that what you're saying is not true because you're undermining what you're saying by not having anything to back it up. And so let's, that's, we've got that out of the way, but let's understand this. Faith condemns the ungodly. And I don't want you to be caught off guard, but I want you to know this. When you live out true faith in your context, true faith that demonstrates itself through works, it will condemn the ungodly. It will fluster and aggravate and annoy the ungodly around you. You say, well, I don't, I don't want to do that. That's not my intention. That's what I'm trying to help you understand. It doesn't matter what your intentions are. True faith in what God has said will always bring condemnation in a experiential way to those around you. Look at verse 7. It says, by faith, skipping to the end, Noah condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. How in the world did Noah condemn the world? Well, if you were to flip back to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 and 6, the, the scriptures tell us that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man in the days of Noah was great in the earth and that every, listen to this, every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. I can't think of a way to be more exaggerated than that. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. If you crack the heart open and you found the thoughts and then you crack the thoughts open and you found the intentions, what was it? Only evil continually. It says the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. This is the day and age that Noah lives in. These are his contemporaries. Now, the scriptures say, if you keep reading, in this context, with this background and all this evil perpetuating in the hearts and minds of every man, God sees Noah and says, hey, this man has found favor in my eyes. And what do we know of this man who's found favor in God's eyes? Well, 1 Peter speaks to that. 
It'll be on the screen for you. 1 Peter 3.20, it says, Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. This is a day and age when no one found favor in God's eyes. No one sought after God. No one had faith in God except for one man, and that man built an ark, and God patiently waited to destroy the earth until the ark was ready. Also speaking of this time is the next letter from Peter, Second Peter, verse 5 in chapter 2. It says, he, or if he did not spare the ancient world, speaking of God, but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. We're not going to work with the, the context or the point of that, but there's an aside here. It helps us to see that Noah was a herald of righteousness. What does that mean? He's a preacher, a proclaimer, a foreteller of righteousness. Now, he did so not just passively through his lifestyle, but actively through his words. And through his words and through his actions, he condemned the ungodly. He condemned the world. Now, there's a man, his name's John Owen. I think what he wrote about this word condemn used here is really helpful. Because we might think, well, does God want me to walk around condemning people? Um, well, here's John Owen helping us to understand. He says, Noah did not condemn the world as its judge. Noah didn't have a, a, a wooden gavel that he wrapped on the, the desk there so that everybody knew that because of Noah and what he was saying, the world would then be condemned. No, he's, he's condemning the world, he says, as an advocate or as a witness through a plea and testimony. He goes on to say, he condemned the world by his teaching, through his obedience, by his example, and through the faith he exercised. You see, he's not the judge of the world, neither are you. But Noah, in believing God, served as a witness, a squeaky wheel, a testimony against the ungodly that God was true and they would be destroyed if they didn't repent. Another great preacher in a similar era to, uh, era to John Owen said this, that every act of faith condemns the world. Every act of faith condemns the world. I love when statements are made this exhaustively. Every act. So when I wake up in the morning and by faith I get dressed to gather with the saints one Sunday out of 52 in a year, that simple act condemns the world? Yes. Every time that, every time that I offer and extend the forgiveness that I've been given to somebody else, that condemns the world? Absolutely. Absolutely. Every time I say a kind word or encourage somebody, every time I share a, a, a hint or the exhaustive explosion of the gospel with my neighbor, any of those things are condemning the world? Absolutely. 
Any time that I in faith believe that through my suffering that God is doing something for my good and his glory, absolutely. When I have a good attitude, even though I'm suffering through a sickness or some financial crisis, I just believe that God is still good, that's condemning the world? Absolutely. Listen to this. Commenting on verse 7, this one preacher goes on. He says, live a holy life. I have heard it said that if there is a crooked stick and you want to show how crooked it is, you need not waste words in description. Place a straight one by the side of it and the thing is done directly. Noah condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is by faith, simply by being a straight stick in a crooked bunch. And in that way, he condemned the world. He was a witness against the world. He believed God and was a testimony against those who did not. Friends, this is why the world hates us. And if you're a new Christian or if you're thinking about maybe stepping into this faith, I want you to know something. The world will hate you. If you follow Jesus, the world will hate you. Jesus promised us that. He said, they hated me before you, and if you follow me, they'll hate you too. And why do they hate us? Because our faith in God condemns them. It speaks loudly. You say, well, I've not even said anything hardly. It doesn't matter. When you seriously place your faith in God and what he has said, when push comes to shove, your verbal and nonverbal faith in God condemns those around you who do not believe in God or yet who don't believe God. Jesus, he says, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. And he said, well, that's a little bit confusing because didn't he condemn the world? Well, in a sense, yes, he did, and in a sense, he didn't. What was the purpose in him coming into the world? Was it to condemn the world? No, it was so that the world through him might have life. And yet the sun that hardens the clay is the same one that melts the wax. The same testimony that Jesus had of a righteous life, believing the Father, melted so many of our hearts. And yet at the same time, it hardened many others. And in that way, it did condemn. True faith, faith in God, it condemns the world. We talked a moment ago at the beginning of this point, I threw this out there, that false faith or fake faith, empty faith does not condemn those around you. It simply encourages them. I remember a friend of mine had a t-shirt when I was a kid, and uh, I, 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 it said this on the t-shirt, and it really just stuck with me throughout my life. It said this, your talk talks and your walk talks. That's good. Your, your talk talks and your walk talks, right? So both of them talk. Both of them speak. But then it said, but your walk 
talks louder than your talk talks. It's a bit of a tongue twister. But it's so good. Christian, your talk talks and your walk talks. The things that you say about faith, it's said. And the works that go along with your faith, they talk as well. But one talks a little bit louder than the other, or a great bit louder. Let me ask you, when your faith, or does your faith demonstrate itself to be true? Does it demonstrate itself to be active? Does your faith convict or condemn the world? Now, I don't mean to say, does everybody on your street hate you? Well, we might have a different problem if that's the case. But those who are against God, those who do not believe God, when they consider your life, are they convicted? Are they condemned? In the life of Noah, we see that his faith played out, condemned the world. Now, we've spent a great bit of time this morning in a chapter that's about faith, talking about works. You might be saying, well, Pastor Josh, is this still called the the hall of faith, or has this now become the hall of works? Well, in case you're wondering sincerely, let me give you the fourth and final point. And that's that faith alone secures righteousness. Faith alone secures righteousness. Again, in case we're confused, at the very beginning of the verse, it says, verse 7, by faith, Noah. What did Noah do by faith? Well, he built an ark by faith. What else did he do? Anything else? By faith, he condemned the world. Okay, did he do anything else? By faith, he became an heir. What did he become an heir of? An heir of righteousness. Again, that comes by faith. That comes by faith. Make no mistake this morning, there is no way for you to please God aside from faith. Believing God, there's no way. Charles Spurgeon, speaking of this very topic, he says this, God declared Noah righteous. Not righteous by his works, although his works following upon his faith, proved him to be righteous. He was righteous by his faith. He believed God and found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He received the righteousness that God gives through Jesus Christ to all who believe. Wrapped in this, he stood before the Lord, justified and approved. By faith, he was adopted and became a son, an heir. For him, the promise of the woman's seed, though it was all the Bible that he had, was quite enough. The woman's seed, the promise that God would deliver us through the seed of the woman, and the lamb's sacrifice which Abel had seen, 
These were almost all the revelations that Noah had known. He had no Pentateuch, no Psalms, no Gospels, no Epistles, but he so believed that little part of his Bible that he expected that Christ in him would bruise the serpent in the world. God honored his faith and he condemned the world. He lived when the rest perished. He was secure in his ark when the myriads were sinking in the deluge. He became the heir of righteousness that comes by faith when others were condemned. What was it that saved Noah? Was it the work that he did in building the ark? No, simply that he believed God. That he believed God. And by believing God, he was saved. As we transition to the Lord's Supper, I want you to think about the picture of the ark. And the ark is, in fact, a picture for us. Now, it's a reality. It existed and potentially still exists somewhere. But more than the fact that it is a true story, it also illustrates an even greater reality than a, a worldwide flood and a humongous wooden ark. As a picture, I want you to, to think of the ark. Imagine Noah spending the last little bit that he had to buy the last bit of nails and to pay the last few contractors. He's literally got nothing left. He spent his entire life and his life savings, his reputation all poured out to do what God has said in building this great boat. The ark's finished. Storm clouds begin to roll in. The earth is shaking. Great caverns are opening up in the face of the earth. Water is pouring out. Rain is, become, is coming down. And just before that, God looks to Noah and he says, come into the ark. I want you to come into the ark. And there, Noah goes into the ark. And the Bible says that once Noah is in the ark, what happens? That God shuts the door. Now, some of you are getting a little claustrophobic. You're like, you did, there was a door and there was a box. Any windows, any other doors, God shut, the, uh, God shut the ark. Well, there is, in fact, a window. No other door. One door and one window. Now, where is the window? Well, when we see pictures on our nursery walls, we see the ark, right? We see a, a nice door with some, some uh, creatures, maybe an elephant and a giraffe uh, walking up this, uh, this ramp. And then we see a really pretty window, maybe even with some curtains there on the side. But that's not where the window was. You say, well, where was the window? The window was on the very top. And so what could you see when you were in the ark looking out the window? You could see the heavens. That's it. God shut the ark. The door was closed. The window was open. What does this mean? What is this picture? Oh, it pictures for us that when you're in the ark, you can't see the destruction. You can't see the dead bodies floating in the water decaying. Furthermore, there, this ark has been pitched within and without. What does that mean? Well, that means the, the decay from outside. The tainted water can't come in. Neither can the precious souls that are cargo inside drift out. 
It's sealed, and the ark's door is closed, and yet there's a window facing the heavens. What is this picture for us? That those who have come in through the door, which is Christ, and are safely hidden in that ark, will not face destruction, neither will they be lost. And can they see anything? They can see into the face of God. That's what the ark, which is a historical reality, points and teaches us about our future and about the present. No water will come in. No soul will go out. Safe in the arms of Jesus. We sang not long ago, just a few moments ago, in Christ alone. That's the testimony that we have as Christians coming to the Lord's table. By the way, this is an interesting fact. I'll throw it as we go to the table. In the Old Testament, well, the Old Testament was written in a different language than the New Testament. But when the Old Testament was translated into the more modern language of Greek, they had to figure out some words. Well, guess what word that they used to describe the the pitch that the Hebrew used to talk about the tar that was tucked in on the inside and outside of the ark. It's the same word where we get atonement. It's the same word where we get atonement. Those who stepped into the ark trusted the work of God on their behalf. And that's what we're about to do now. We're about to demonstrate to the world that we are trusting in the work of Jesus. That's the Lord's Supper. The scriptures say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 and 25, speaking of Jesus, when he had given thanks, he broke it, the bread, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Christian, we're going to look at how to prepare to receive from the Lord's table. We want to remember the new covenant. We want to remember what Jesus accomplished what's pictured in the ark, accomplished in his sacrifice. We want to remember or understand how to prepare for that. If we were to keep reading a few verses down in 1 Corinthians, we'd find verse 27 that says, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And so how do we avoid partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. Well, first, let me encourage you. The first is this, examine yourself. The next verse says, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine yourself. So how do you examine yourself? What does it look like to examine yourself? Well, the first is to confess sin. Christian, you say, well, I want to be worthy. I want to come to the table today. Well, the way to prepare is to confess your sin. We can share everything, all the sin, the deepest, darkest truths about us, the 
the ones that we wish nobody would know, we can pull all of those out in the presence of God and know that we'll not be cast away, we'll, we'll not be pushed away, we'll be welcomed in. When we confess our sins, we're demonstrating that we truly trust in God and what Jesus has accomplished for us. And so, friend, go to the Lord now and confess your sins. He's faithful and he's just to forgive you of your sins. Don't come to the Lord's table with sin hidden in your heart. It lies about the gospel. Don't do that this morning. Confess that sin. Confess it to God. Confess it to your brother and sister. Confess it to your neighbor. He's faithful and just to forgive you. Another way that you can prepare this morning is by renewing your your commitment to obedience. Saying, God, I believe what you say is true and I'm committing, I'm renewing my commitment to you this morning, new and fresh, that I will continue to obey you. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. And so this morning, to the Father, renew your commitment to him. And here's another way, and this isn't exhaustive by any means, but another way for you this morning to prepare to come to the Lord's table is to restore any broken relationships. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is teaching, and he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The reality is that this table pictures our unity, not just to Christ, but to each other, with each other. This pictures that we are at one relationally. And so if that picture is inconsistent with the relationships that you have, maybe in your life group or your key group, or maybe even in your marriage, the greater membership of the church, I would beg you to abstain until that relationship is restored. This is some ways that we can be prepared. Now, I'm going to pray, and as I do, I want to invite you to pray as well, to spend some time reflecting on what the body and the blood of Christ pictured here, what they really mean. Take some time to confess sin, but also take some time to give thanks to God for the supply in this meal. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder. But even more than the reminder, Father, we thank you for what this meal reminds us of. Jesus, that you would allow your body to be broken and your blood to be shed so that we could be brought near to the Father. That you would pay for our sin and that you would give us your righteousness. What an incredible truth. Father, you've told us that if we confess our sins, that you'll forgive us of our sins. 
you've promised that anyone who comes to Christ will not be cast out, but will find safety and rest for their souls. Father, your church, we are living and operating in that reality. God, would you give us even greater faith today to walk in even more openness and boldness in our relationship with this world that's lost and dying and in our relationship with you. Father, we thank you for this truth. As we reflect, would you give us clarity? Would you reveal our sin? Father, would you restore the unity that you've promised us? Father, we know there's nothing that we can do to be made right. But we believe that you have done that. Help us to rest in that this morning. Jesus, we ask that in your name.